Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today, he's the third time he's back. He has a lot to say, uh, James Shapiro. He's in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at University of Chicago. He's been in the game for decades and decades and decades. Um, Today in particular, uh, he's going to be speaking at a symposium coming up October 14th through the 16th of this year, very soon. It's on cancer and evolution. And I think he's going to have a lot of really interesting insights uh, about that. So, James, welcome. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. What got you interested in considering cancer and then considering it uh, with these new eyes, I guess you could say? Well, I was talking to a colleague of mine, one of the other organizers of the meeting, who's written a book about evolution. And he says, what can we do with these different ways of thinking about evolution from conventional wisdom? And uh, how can it be useful? And we thought, well, maybe linking it to cancer would be useful. And it's not a, a novel idea to hook up evolution and cancer to each other. That's been going on for about 20 years now. But mostly it's been people trying to take lessons from evolutionary biology and conventional evolutionary biology and applying them to cancer. And what I want to do in my presentation is turn the, the tables and ask what can ev- cancer biology teach evolutionary biology? I think there's some very important lessons to be learned there. You know, in terms of cancer, I've learned that, you know, tumors are better, very heterogeneous. Um, when you hit them with chemotherapy and radiation and all that, they, they seem to just simply diversify even more and become more intractable because now they have even more different cell types, even more different epigenetic marks, even more underlying genetic change. How did this thought first coalesce for you when you considered cancer that it looked like maybe, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but, you know, a a hyper form of evolution. How did you start to first draw these conclusions? Well, cancer is an evolutionary disease. If you think about it, you start off with a a cell that becomes a benign cancer cell, and then it becomes a malignant cancer cell, and then it becomes a metastatic cancer cell, and then it becomes diversified and becomes resistant to all kinds of agents which are tried which people use to, to, to eliminate it. And it's the tremendous ability that cancer cells have to diversify themselves quite rapidly, certainly within a human lifetime, that I found so interesting because it points out that we don't have to wait eons for ma- major changes to occur. They can occur quite, quite rapidly, and they do in cancer. So um, when you say it's an evolutionary disease, what, you know, I've heard it called a metabolic disease. Uh, but what do you mean when you say it's an evolutionary disease? What does that mean? Well, it means that the, the cells in cancer are evolving and changing. I'm uh, personally particularly interested in how they change their genomes, their DNA, uh, but they change over time. So a normal cell is different from a benign tumor cell. A benign tumor cell 
has taken another evolutionary step and become malignant. A malignant cell or tumor can take another step and become metastatic. And uh, then if it's treated with uh, anti-cancer drugs, it can take other new steps and become resistant to those anti-cancer drugs. And it's, uh, as you say, they become more diverse as well, which means that it's like evolutionary diversification is taking place and it's taking place inside the body. And uh, the end result, of course, is harmful to the body, but from the cell's perspective, uh, it's giving them greater capacity to reproduce and uh, spread themselves. So how do you think cancer first starts? What do you think starts it, causes it? You know, I know all cancers are different, but in general, what do you think are some of the factors that cause it and how does it start? Well, I, I just been preparing my presentation and I was going back over something that uh, interested me. I read, there's a man named Theodore Bovary. I don't know if you know his name, but he w- worked at the turn of the 20th century. I heard of Madame Bovary. Is that, is he really? No, no, that's B-O-V-A-R-Y. This is B-O-V-E-R-I. Oh. Uh, he was German and he was uh, a pioneer in cytogenetics and studying the chromosomes of cells and what happened to them as cells grow. And, uh, he wrote this book on the origin of malignant tumors back in 1914, it was. And um, he talks about cells becoming uh, malignant from injuries and uh, skin injuries, from wounds or from burn injuries. And if after it heals, you don't see any disease, but if the healed region become, becomes injured again, then a malignancy can start, a cancer can begin to grow. And um, this was to me quite interesting because it fit uh, with uh, what I was reading about current research on, on cancer evolution. And uh, it turns out that uh, you develop new kinds of cells. The cells get put under stress. Sometimes they become non-dividing cells and then all of a sudden they divide in an unusual way and they scramble their chromosomes when they do that. And all of a sudden, they have new properties. And that is uh, quite amazing. It's something that most people wouldn't think of being possible. But it happens all the time in cancer. And if it happens in cancer, it can certainly happen in evolution. What do you think um, happens first? Do you think that there's first epigenetic change, and then that piles up to the point where the cell can no longer adapt, and then it... uh for some reason, it undergoes a deeper, more profound change and the, the underlying genes change? Or do you think those two things can just, you know, coincidentally happen? Well, basically, it's damage. Damage to the, the ability of cells to reproduce or damage to the cells to, to reproduce and distribute their genomes when they divide. And either of those processes leads to certain cell biological events, which end up scrambling the chromosomes. So one thing that happens when the cells can't divide properly is they form polyploid giant cells. And these cells keep replicating their DNA, but can't divide. So they accumulate more and more chromosomes. And then all of a sudden they go through a division and they end up making all different kinds of cells, some of which don't have enough chromosomes, some of which have more chromosomes than uh, are usually needed, but others which come out just about uh, right with their chromosome number and can go on and multiply. And those are tumor cells. So you're saying literally extra chromosomes are, uh, start to appear in a given cell? 
Yeah, that's called polyploidy. Normally we have in our bodies, for example, 46 chromosomes, of two of, of each of 23 different chromosomes. But chromosomes, genomes can double or, or cells can fuse and chromosomes numbers can go up and cells can become polyploid, at which point they, they cease being able to do normal division, which is a highly regulated, very careful process, which makes sure that whenever the chromosomes duplicate, they're distributed equally to the two daughter cells. But when that can't happen, they become polyploid cells, which undergo what's called endoreplication, internal duplication of the genome without division. But at some point, the cell division machinery clicks in and the cell fragments into many different smaller cells. And where the genomes go is, is not as, as neat as it is in normal cell division. It's more chaotic, as a, as a colleague of mine in Wayne State likes to say. And um, you get different kinds of cells produced. And among those can be cells which have cancer properties, tumor properties, and are, have rearranged genomes with different combinations of chromosomes or different structures of their chromosomes. And they go on to multiply in ways that are outside the normal controls. And that's what cancer is. So do you think that the damage happens during normal cellular activity, respiration, whatever it is, and then during cell division of that particular cell, that's when the, uh, the damage now takes effect. That's when the fragmentation of chromosomes happens. That's when the polyploidy happens. Well, there's another uh, way that, that cells can become cancer cells too. And that's when there's a mistake in cell division and a chromosome is left behind or a chromosome uh, fragment is left behind. And it becomes encased in what's called a micronucleus. And when that micronucleus is in a cell together with the normal nucleus, it treats its chromosomal DNA very differently. The normal nucleus has a, a defined period called the S period when it replicates its DNA and duplicates the chromosomes and goes on to separate them. But in the micronucleus later on in the cell cycle, the chromosome is, is starts replicating and it's fragmented into lots of little pieces. And those pieces then end up in one of the daughter cells and can be put together in a way that's completely rearranged. And that process has, has been identified in cancer. It's called chromothripsis, which literally means chromosome shattering. And it's characteristic of many cancer cells. So uh, mistakes can happen, or there can be infections by viruses, and they can cause cancer in a number of different ways. And I expect when we talk about viruses more, we can discuss that. Bacterial infection can cause cancer because some bacteria make toxins, which damage the DNA in the chromosomes. That leads to mistakes in, in cell division and either micronuclei form or, or polyploid cells form. Physical trauma, as I said, in, wound, in wounds, polyploidy is, is a normal part of wound healing in, in human beings. It's also a part of wound healing in Drosophila and in plants. And the polyploid cells, as I said, when they divide, often scramble their chromosomes. And so any of those triggers can produce cancer. And we know that there's a wide range of different chemicals and, and infections and insults that can cause uh, cancer. These chromosomal fragments, this polyploidy, they can be radically different from uh, the normal set of chromosomes or only slightly different? Are they always diminished in their ability? Do they 
move back towards a state of normalcy, you know, in the, in the daughter cells that come from this, you know, this cell division that uh, creates these messed up cells? Well, it depends what perspective you're talking about, whether they're messed up or not. From the, the, our perspective, they are messed up. But from the cell's perspective, they've got new capabilities and can grow in ways that they couldn't grow before. No, they don't go back to what they were before. They carry on uh, changing even more as they progress through cancer. This is very similar to what happens in, in evolution, where you have a, a certain set of organisms for a period of time, and it's, it's fairly uh, set in the, in the fossil record, and all of a sudden something happens like an asteroid hitting the Earth or massive volcanic activity, and many of the organisms go extinct. Those are called mass extinctions. But after that, all kinds of new organisms appear, and we don't know how they arose. Maybe they arose like the cancers change. We, we do have many mechanisms to try to preserve the fidelity of our cells. You know, we have an immune system. We have error correction, you know, in, in, in cell division, the DNA replication. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of drive towards preservation of what is. Absolutely. At what point is there a transition when there's a, a cell division that creates this, I forget the word, you know, but these, uh, these chromosomes that are altered. At what point is there now a different, um, I guess, trajectory. identity cell? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and how do you sustain a different trajectory? Well, I think learning the details of that will take some time. People have been studying this as a consequence of virus infection because you can easily do experiments with viruses in normal cells and, and see what happens there. But a number of people are, are convinced that the laboratory models that we have for how viruses induce oncogenic changes, cancer changes, uh, are not necessarily reflecting what goes on in, in the body. In other cases, with chemical uh, carcinogens or with uh, physical injuries, uh, we're still a little bit in the dark about that. Although we do know that things like radiation, which causes cancer, uh, are damaging to the genome and cause chromosome breakage. So the, there are a variety of ways that the cells hereditary makeup and its behavior as a result can change uh, when uh, it encounters some of these cancer-causing agents. But is there, I mean, I, I would think there's a great attempt to to get rid of these polyploidy cells, for, you know, to get rid of cells that have these damaged chromosomes. I would well, think I, the immune system is tuned to recognize them and get rid of them as much as possible, right? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, they come from the body itself. So the immune system doesn't recognize its own cells. The antibody-producing cells, which recognize the, their own cells, commit suicide so that we don't produce antibodies against their own tissues. And uh, there are, I'm sure, other uh, mechanisms at work uh, which uh, protect cells that come from the body itself. It recognizes them as self, and the changes that occur aren't necessarily in uh, features of the, of the, the new cells, uh, which are recognized as different by the immune system. Of course, there are control systems at work to, to control unrestricted division, but those systems tend to break down, especially when the genome is changing rapidly. So do you think that, um, for instance, people have as much cancer as you would expect, a lot more, a lot less, you know, given the... Uh... Again, the, the preservation of, uh, of healthy self versus this, uh, this, 
this bad path? It, it's hard to say because we know that people who take too much sun exposure when they're young can develop cancer, skin cancer. We know that minors exposed to asbestos can develop lung cancer. We know that smokers develop lung cancer. So the likelihood that you're going to get cancer has a lot to do with your life experience. And these different agents have different effects on the likelihood that you, you will get cancer. I think that the defense mechanisms we have are pretty good, but they're, they're not perfect. And uh, we know that cancer is, is a major uh, problem. And one of the reasons we're organizing this symposium is to say, if we take this evolutionary perspective on cancer and think of it not as a, a, a single kind of cell that we need to eradicate, but as something which is capable of changing and adapting to our treatments, maybe we need to address the cancer in a different way. And that's what we're hoping will come out of discussing these questions about evolution of cancers and uh, treatments and therapies for cancer. Yeah, so if, if someone is completely open to an evolutionary view of cancer, you know, I, I know this is to be sorted out, but what does this tell you about how you would treat it? If I said, you know, James, you got someone here with a particular kind of cancer, what do we do? You know, get, knowing what you know and, and uh, being open to what you've discovered, how would you approach it? You know, what are, what's some general thoughts? Well, that's outside my sphere of expertise. But what my colleagues have said is that you, you, the kind of treatment, which is massive chemotherapy in many cases, or radiation therapy, only triggers these changes to me, so that you end up, after the treatment, you get relief for a short period of time. But then the cancer comes back in an even more aggressive form. And uh, they're now uh, doing what they call adaptive therapy where they moderate the treatments and try and keep them from being so severe that they induce a transformation of the cancer into something that's worse. So that's one of the, the practical benefits of, of thinking about cancers as capable of changing and as evolving entities, is that you have to avoid triggering the changes because that can make the situation much worse than it was to start with. At what point does cancer become its own entity? that has its own identity and its own, you know, homeostatic drive and everything. Is that at all times, even with one cancer cell? Or is it, you know, as it grows and it becomes, a, let's say, a tumor, mm -hmm. is there another level of agency? If there's metastases, is there, you know, mothership versus, you know, a discovery ship type relationship where it's in one organism that's communicating? Of course, an initial tumor at one location is very different from a metastatic tumor. So and metastatic tumors, as you've pointed out, can have many different identities. And uh, so, yes, there's change over time. And that's one of the things that we have to take into account when we think of how, how we can use this different perspective in planning out how we're going to deal with cancer and, and confront it and try and prevent it from changing. The other thing is, are there any ways we can block the changes which occur, which tend to make cancers more harmful? than they are when they first appear. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, people, it's funny that, you know, even hardcore, uh, what you would say, uh, you know, neo-Darwinists still give cancer an identity. It's like this separate thing from the person, you know? At what point do you think that there is a separate identity? And what does that tell you about treating it, about dealing with it? You know, is it better to consider it as just you, but a different manifestation of you? Or is it better to consider it as a, 
as a separate organism, literally that has its own drives and abilities and, you know, goals. Well, I think we were just discussing before the immune system and, and its reaction to cancer. And for the immune system, cancer is you. So there is no change there. But from the point of view of, of growth and, and its effect on the organism as a whole, it, cancer is a disease because it, it impacts the whole organism and it starts to follow different rules and controls when it, when it grows and divides. And so in that sense, it's different. And I think we, we perhaps need to be a little bit more complex in our understanding of what similarity and difference are, uh, constitute, that things can be similar in some ways and different in other ways. And that also one of the things that I think is very important is an important lesson that cancer can show evolutionary biologists is that organisms can have the ability to change themselves and can become increasingly capable of changing themselves, which is what happens in cancer as it progresses and goes from a, a single clone of cells to these complicated populations that you described at the beginning. So cancer shows us how much potency there is or how much capability there is, a cell or a group of cells, in changing their heredity and acquiring new characteristics. That's why I think it's so interesting about what evolution can learn from, from cancer, because cancer is, is a, a demonstration of the inherent potential for evolutionary change. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of evolutionary terms, is, is cancer a speciation event? And if so, at what point? in its uh, growth? Uh, probably when the first cancer cell is formed. There's actually one of the people speaking at the, at the conference calls malignancy or metastasis cancer cambrian, meaning the cambrian explosion. And he draws an analogy between the differentiation of cancer cells into many different types, which can spread over the body to the explosion of different kinds of life forms in the cambrian explosion, which could occupy many different ecological niches in the in the planetary environment if, if you look at a particular form of cancer i don't know, let's say breast cancer um mm -hmm. are there infinite types if you really characterize the heck out of it or are there only a few specific types and well, if so maybe this shows you that uh, this evolution is directed along certain preferential pathways well it, it it's certainly the case that different cancers show certain peculiar features or certain individual features. Uh, they're not all uniform. And the idea of trying to pin down a few small number of cancer genes, which were important, has failed. So that approach hasn't worked successfully. Okay. Again, with this new view of cancer, I mean, what, what kind of work do you think needs to be done urgently in order to, uh, you know, to help people that have cancer? I mean, you know, in well, general, what, what do you think needs to be figured out quickly? Well, I, I think uh, one thing is how we can treat cancer, find out what the triggers are that induce the cells to get into these states where they change and either block them or avoid them. That can be a great benefit in, in slowing down the progression of cancer. Well, if we study the mechanisms of change, and again, we, we, we come up with targets for, for therapies and we can block certain changes, which we know are important. Uh, like the, the formation of these polyploid cells or the formation of micronuclei, things which, which change the genome radically, that can be of, of great use. And so that means that we have to understand how those processes occur. People are working on that uh, right now, but perhaps not as many as should be. 
I think that's the case where conventional wisdom, which is that mutations are stochastic and not related to each other, uh, holds us back because we know that many of these changes in these cancer cells happen very suddenly and what, what are, uh, one paper calls catastrophic uh, events in a single generation. That may be true in evolution as well. And if we could understand how that happens and uh, what the processes are, maybe we could intervene and uh, prevent them or block them. Is there any instance of um, you know, a cancer cell returning back to a normal phenotype? Yeah, that happens too. What's that called and what are the conditions under which that happens? I'm not sure what it's called. I know it happens in, in, in cell cultures, cancer cell cultures. Sometimes they, they sort of de-differentiate and become more like normal cells again. But not being an oncologist, that's not my vocabulary. So I'm afraid I, I can't give you the exact name of that. Well, I think a lot could be learned by, by, again, figuring out how that happens. And then perhaps, I mean, like, do we understand the end goal of cancer, the end state? Does it have an end state? Or, you know, the person that, that has it always dies before the end state is reached. Is there any, you know, if you look at the, at the changes, at the evolution of it, uh, can we calculate an end state? Where is it headed towards? Well, as far as we know, they're headed towards ability to keep on growing. And I'm not sure that you can talk about the cells as having a goal because that implies that there's intentionality that's occurring. And, and we don't know that yet. For example, you asked earlier about different kinds of cancers being different from each other, and they are, but we don't know how much that's due to the way they change themselves and how much that's due to the fact that when you're a certain kind of cell and a certain kind of uh, tissue in the, in the body, certain changes are beneficial and allow you to multiply, and other changes are important for multiplying in other tissues. Certainly, cancer cells, when they first begin, are not able to metastasize to new places in the body. It takes some time for that to, ability to be acquired. Sometimes it just happens by fusion with a cell which comes from a different tissue and has the sort of tissue tropism, the, the targeting towards that tissue built into it. And then the cancer's hybrid cancer targeted cell acquires the new targeting, and that's one of the sources of metastasis. So cell fusions is another way that uh, cancer cells evolve. And that's very similar to biological evolution when different species come together and they make hybrids and we get very rapid evolutionary change from the hybrids. And that's well, well documented in both the classical literature with plants and in genomics studies with, with all organisms, the hybrids from yeast to, to, uh, to mammals and uh, higher plants Hybrids are the forms that evolve most rapidly. Well, what would cause a, um, a cancer to continue to adapt and change more so versus less so or stop changing and kind of stay as it is? One of the answers is we know that it happens even when we try our, to kill them off in a, with massive doses of chemotherapy or, or radiation. Often that's unsuccessful. That means that even though we may knock off the vast majority of the cells, if a few survive and undergo one of these processes where they change in radical ways, we can get more resistant and more malignant cells that come out of that process. And that is a, a common experience in, in, in cancer treatment. Do you think the different, um, I guess I'll call them cell types, you know, within a tumor interact? 
and they act collaboratively or collectively? You know, I like within a tumor, does it, uh, again, do they, do they start to have differentiation of function and it literally is becoming like a, an organism with different cell types? I think that does happen. Again, I'm not an expert in that field, but I believe that's one of the ways that pathologists distinguish between the different grades of cancers is whether they're uniform or, or heterogeneous. Well, they can be uniform in terms of their, uh, you know, the genotype, but in terms of action and collaboration, you know, I don't know. I mean, tumors, I guess, are very messy, obviously, but I guess they would have some structure. You know, they encourage angiogenesis. And uh, exactly. I just wonder at what level there's this, this, you know, cell-to-cell communication within a tumor and coordinated action. Well, certainly cell-to-cell communication is going on in angiogenesis because you can't get blood vessels to form without cell division and attracting cells. I think the pathologist can recognize a more complex, more highly evolved cancer and distinguish it from a less complex, less evolved cancer. And they, they, give, they give it names stage one, stage two, stage three. I think the general rule is that the more complex the cancer is, the more dangerous it is, and the more difficult it is to treat. And that makes sense because it can form, can specialize and form tissues and, and do different things. Do you think that all cancers have to just continue to explore this um... I guess their information space and keep differentiating, you know, ad infinitum in order to keep replicating? Or do you think, again, that there are endpoints where they can stop and just coexist with their hosts uh, for, uh, for, you know? Well, there are, can- there are cancers that people live with for very long periods of time. And a very high percentage of all men, for example, get prostate cancer. But very few of them require treatment because it, it just stays put and it doesn't become malignant or, or metastatic. So, we can all have cancers in our bodies that aren't harming us because they haven't advanced enough and they're not aggressive enough to, to do damage to us. It would be interesting to know exactly to what extent that's going on. I, I'm not sure that that has been studied, but that question has been asked in, in perhaps in the way it should be. Yeah, just, um, again, it's strange. Why would some be, uh, again, commensal and then others uh, just continue on? I wonder what the difference is and how you could spot that or figure that out. Well, again, this is, this is what the pathologists try to do when you have a tumor removed and they look at it and they look at the cells and they try and decide whether it's something that's uh, active and aggressive or it's something that's relatively benign. And there they have experience to, to go on. And it's also the case that the thing I do know is that as the genome becomes more and more scrambled, as the chromosomes become more and more restructured and reorganized, we know that the prognosis tends to, to decline. So it, that tells us that the more evolved the tumor is, the more dangerous it is. And I think that makes some kind of sense. Well, if you characterize it as scrambled, that doesn't sound like very effective. It's, it, it's just like a restructuring and reorganization. But scrambled yeah. to me means lack of ability, not increased ability. One of the points that's made by my colleague, Henry Hang, who, who's written this book published last year called Genome Chaos, and you, sh- you should really talk to Henry. Okay. Um, he talks about karyotype information. Scrambling the chromosomes is what happens when, when organisms evolve. And uh, it's not accumulating mutations that gives you big changes in organisms. It's changing the, the chromosomes and reorganizing the chromosomes. That's what gives you major changes in, in characters and also separates the different species from each other. Sexual reproduction 
uh, is not a, a source of diversity. It's a source of stability in the way the chromosomes are constituted. Because if they're not properly constituted, you can't produce gametes, can't produce sperm and eggs. Once they change structure, you've got something which can't reproduce with its original form and has to reproduce with other organisms that share the same chromosome architectures. And Henry and, and argues, and I think he's right, that the architecture of the chromosomes is, is, is just as important as the content of the different genetic loci that are in those chromosomes in determining the characters of, of, of the organism. And that's the difference between what's called macroevolution, making new species and new taxa, and microevolution, which is just refining individual characteristics of the organism. What Darwin was talking about is now known to be microevolution. And when the chromosomes get scrambled, that's macroevolution. And one of the reasons I'm excited about the cancer evolution connection is that cancer shows us that macroevolutionary change can occur quite rapidly. That changes the way we have to think about things like the Cambrian explosion. How did all those different forms of organism come to be after the uh, previous extinction? mass extinction. It's not by gradual accumulation of mutations, but probably by restructuring their genomes. And we know, for example, that when vertebrates uh, appeared from simpler animals, they took their genome and, and doubled it twice. So they had four copies of everything. And then they rearranged the chromosomes. And fish rearranged in one way, and each fish species has its own set of chromosomes. Birds rearranged another way. Mammals rearranged a different way. These rearrangements that when I say scrambled, I meant changed in, in structure and organization. That didn't mean scrambled out of existence or, or devoid of information, because obviously, if you rearrange them and, and destroy useful information that the genomes contain, that's not going to survive. But if you rearrange them and it gives you new characters and new properties without losing the old ones, and that's part of what genome duplication is about, then that's a benefit. I mean, we have our whole epigenetic marks system mm -hmm. to allow us to adapt. You know, why? I mean, we don't seem to, I don't, I don't seem to know of any example of people that change their underlying DNA and remain in a healthy state. And I don't really seem to know of any, you know, active speciation that occurs, uh, you know, in a short time scales, at least in people. It's never, I don't even know if any speciation is, has ever been observed anywhere. Well, um, there's an article you should read in, in the, Scientific American, I think it's 1954, called Cataclysmic Evolution. By, it was in Scientific American, and it's by a man named Ledyard Stebbins, who was a well-known geneticist and uh, evolutionist, 1951, called Cataclysmic Evolution. And he was studying hybrids between different plant species. And within two or three generations, you get a new species with different characters and different properties. And he describes this in this uh, article in 1951, begins the article by talking about what happened in the Fertile Crescent about 10,000 years ago when two uh, local grass was crossed with a, a relative of, of wheat and we got flower wheat out of it. And that was the beginning of, of the, the Near East civilization because now you had a plant which could produce food on, on a large scale. And um, as I said, he calls it cataclysmic evolution because the evolution is so rapid. So we, and we have lots of examples of that now, and you can do that experimentally as well. Do you know of any articles or people that have, um, you know, uh, taken biopsies from someone's tumor over time 
over days, months, weeks, years, and, and looked at it and compared it, or looked at you know the evolution of given metastases and longitudinally and seen what uh, where they're going, what they're doing, how they're differentiating. Yeah, there's been a lot of work like that, and the genomes become more and more restructured over time. They accumulate mutations as well. There hasn't been as perhaps as much longitudinal study as there needs to be. Have you talked to Raza Azra? Yeah, a while back, yeah. Yeah, because she's, she has a collection of, of tissue samples from her patients that she's collected right. over the last 30 or 40 years, and they need to be examined to see how the tumors are progressing and what the changes are. But early tumors tend to have less genome restructuring than later tumors. When you look at a tumor, you, you need to find out when you see major genome re- changes, does it occur early in the tumor or late in the tumor? And it can be, you can determine that by saying if all the cells share the same changes, then it probably occurred fairly early in the history of that tumor. But if only some of the cells from a tumor have those changes, then it must have occurred after the tumor began, and only a subset of the ce- cells are descended from a cell where those changes came about. You know, what if, like, in, I don't know, in my liver, part of it starts to turn, you know, become cancerous, but those cells are sending out EVs to adjacent cells and changing them. You know, maybe the tumor starts from one cell, let's say, which seems to be the prevailing theory, but that one cell can now seed the surrounding areas to, uh, you know, to, to join it and become cancerous instead of it all coming from, you know, the progeny of one cell. Well, you can determine that by asking, what do they share changes? So you have these complex changes which occur in, in, in their DNA. And if, if all the cells in a tumor share those changes, they came from the same source. If they don't share them, then they came from different sources. And people are doing that because there's a lot of whole cancer genome sequencing going on now. So is there a novel ability that people have found, novel, uh, I, I would guess, novel sequences, right? Well, there are lots of novel sequences that are made in cancer cells and cancer evolution. A lot of tumors depend upon uh, fusion proteins, which join together one protein uh, from one chromosome and uh, a part of a protein from another chromosome. That's very common in cancer, and some cancers are characterized by that. So there's a lot of innovation that's going on. I would think that the, um, you know, the localized microbiome and virome would change as the cells change, because now they're going to have different uh, receptors and things expressed on their membranes, different, uh, you know, different membrane structure, different EVs put out. So I would think they would, you know, repulse the existing microbiome and attract a different one. Well, there is microbiome change in cancer, and there, there are microbiome characteristics for different cancers. So yes, those interactions go on, of course. It would be surprising if they didn't. Well, I just wonder, uh, you know, it would be interesting to see if a localized microbiome now becomes different. How does that interact with the the microbiome of the healthy cells that are, let's say, adjacent or in the local microenvironment there? I wonder well, what the interaction is there. And, you know, uh, I don't know. I think the first step is to identify the changes and to identify the cha- you know, the different populations. And that's going on. Figuring out what that means takes a lot more ingenuity because one you can do by just doing what's called metagenomics, taking all the tissue and, and cells and getting their DNA and sequencing it. But to figure out how they interact uh, physiologically, that takes uh, a lot more study and a lot more inventiveness in, in the experimental techniques you pr- apply 
And I think that that's the next frontier. Do tumors seem to um, evolve and create their own immune system? Are there like uh, fringe effects on the on the edges of a tumor where that you can see that there's maybe two now divergent immune systems interacting? And is there a lot of perhaps cell death at the edges of a uh, of a tumor because there's uh, you know antagonism the, between them? The antagonism, yeah. Well, I I don't know the answer to that question. I I I would guess that it happens, but I don't know. But you did remind me of something that I I forgot to mention, which is that the there's something a little bit opportunistic about tumor evolution. So the body does rearrange its DNA in, in the lymphocytes that make antibodies. And when you get tumors from those cells, you find that the proteins which are involved in rearranging the DNA to make antibodies are used to rearrange the chromosomes to make some of these gene fusions that I, I talked about uh, to make hybrid uh, proteins or to get certain proteins expressed at higher levels, and they use the uh, antibody-coding DNA, the, the proteins that rearrange the, the DNA encoding the parts of the antibodies to make these fusions. So there is some built-in ability to evolve that's generally controlled very strictly, but when a tumor arises in the B cells in, in the lymphoid system, uh, those uh, capacities are put to use. So you find a lot of uh, fusions between what are called oncogenes or, or tumor promoter genes and the, the loci which encode uh, different immunoglobulins, particularly the immunoglobulin heavy chains. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, James, we're pretty much out of time now. Uh, to remind people, where can they go to, to see you speak at the uh, Cancer Evolution event? It's uh, October 14th to 16th, 2020. It's coming up soon, but where can they go to sign up? It's www.evolutioncancer, two words put together, .org, O-R-G. Okay. And, Very good. Uh, I, I, I think it's going to be a whole range of different people speaking. There'll be going to be some geneticists and biologists like me. There are going to be some people who study cancer cells. There are going to be some clinicians. And there are other people who think about more general questions. So I think there's going to be something in it for a lot of people. And the one thing that's common is everybody's going to look at things from a little bit new and more open perspective, because we know that cancer is a disease of what's called punctuated evolution. The organism stays the same for a period of time, and then all of a sudden it changes. And it stays the same for a while, and then it changes. And that's different from the conventional way of thinking about things changing gradually. And we're hoping that this new kind of thinking and some of the data that people have about cancer will be useful and may give people new ways of addressing some of these uh, very important medical issues. Very good, James. Thanks for coming and talking about this. I appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to talking about viruses next time. Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.